This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. CHQI was launched in 2010 as an effort to identify scalable initiatives and practices to drive health care value. Prior to CHQI, quality initiatives were really done at the system level, uh, the health system level and the individual level, but when the national discussions that were leading to the Affordable Care Act, the leadership of the medical centers got together and created and developed CHQI to support UC Health as a whole to leverage its scale and address health care value and respond to marketplace demand. We received $25 million in funding and funded a total of 52 grants from 2011 to 2015. Uh, and the grants were really um, for, for, to spearhead clinical quality collaboratives, look at and and then in addition to those clinical quality collaboratives for the grants, we also had non-grant related collaboratives, and then we moved into internal and external partnership creation and new system offerings, which I'll go into. And looking at our grant accomplishments first, uh, we'll just, I'm just going to look at the grants, and then we'll talk about the non-grant related activities. Um, so and I'm not going to read you this whole list, but our grants accomplished a great deal and a great range that accrued back to the medical centers. And everything that you see here was really as a direct measurement of the grants. It doesn't measure any of the downstream effect. But we can imagine that any gains that were made had a positive a domino effect, and there were uh, more gains that were realized that we were not really able to measure. Conservatively, our ROI is about two and a half to one. Now, that's based on the whole $25 million that was invested into CHQI. The nearly $66 million of cost-benefit that was gained is just from the grants. If you look at our grant investments, which were about 15 to 16 million, it's more of a four to one ROI on what was accomplished here on cost benefits. And our cost benefits are due to clinical quality improvements, increased revenues, and grant and grant additional grant funds, which were obtained as a result of the original CHQI grant. Okay. Moving into some non-grant related efforts. Uh, as I said, prior to CHQI, there was really no formal mechanism to convene uh, leaders across the system who wanted to share and collaborate. So what we did was, in addition to creating the system-wide work that was a part of the grants, we started to support non-grant system-wide collaboratives in key strategic areas. And then, as I said, establishing internal and external partnerships and system-wide clinical offerings. And really, the idea and the catalyst behind all of these efforts was that the gains that would be realized by UC Health would accrue back to the medical centers. And so far, we think that's happening in, in a very big way. So uh, a little bit about our collaboratives. The collaboratives, the overall aims are to support system-wide performance, and they're spearheaded by clinical leaders who are interested in partnering with colleagues across the system to leverage their scale, share and foster rapid uptake of best practices. And the goal is to be system-wide catalysts and improve performance by leveraging our broader scale and enabling UC Health to provide high-value system-wide services that benefits both the individuals, individual patients, the medical centers, and UC Health as a whole. Uh, we had multiple collaboratives since 2012, and just in 2016, we have five new collaboratives. And these are both clinical, clinically-focused collaboratives and then what I call cross-clinical collaboratives, like bundled payments. 
One of our oldest collaboratives is the Cardiac Surgery Collaborative, and I'm going to talk about this for a minute. It was established in 2012. It was spearheaded by the chairs of the cardiac surgery departments at the five medical centers who put together teams that consisted of the chairs and then uh, their STS coordinators, the Society for Thoracic Surgery coordinators at, at each medical center and nurse tramp champions. And the idea was to develop a performance, a performance dashboard to identify improvement opportunities, monitor ongoing performance outcomes, and create a forum to share ideas. The objectives were to look at individual and system-wide performance improvement through three metrics, improving outcomes, reducing practice and outcome variability, reducing cost and cost variability across the med centers. And this was a fairly complex undertaking because what we started to do is we started to look at costs and we started to look at clinical quality. So using the STS as the gold standard because it's a, nas it's a nationally recognized reporting structure and it, it captures the clinical data uh, and outcomes very well, we had to look at that and look at our cost decision support data as well. So we worked with a company called Biome Analytics and Biome was able to take both the cost data and the STS data and put it in a blender and come up with a report. Um, and basically, you know, what they did was, um, using their, some comprehensive analytics, were able to put together a dashboard down to the patient level, I would, I would add, and it can be sliced and diced in any way that you want, um, looking at our cost and our clinical data together. Um, one of the things that we did, and, and I, it served us well, was that we did not normalize the cost data at all. We actually, they did it so that it was comparable across the medical centers, but it wasn't normalized. And the reason for that was we wanted to be able to have the medical, the feedback back to the medical centers be that this is your data. This is what you're telling us your costs are. And so we're giving it back to you so you can compare yourself what you're telling us your costs are to what they're telling us their costs are. Um, because we found that if it was normalized, it would whitewash the data too much and there wouldn't be a lot for them to work with. And that's worked out fairly well for us. Uh, so they also did, as I said, they validated the cost data against the clinical data. And now we are using it's a very interactive performance dashboard uh, and that the, all the uh, surgeons have access to it as well as the STS coordinators. And it now informs what performance improvement efforts we're going to continue to undertake. This group continues to meet. We, we talk weekly. Uh, the surgeons talk together every other week. And we meet about twice a year in person. And, and this, is one, this is just one example of a, a clinical collaborative that's been in place for a long time. Um, this collaborative has accomplished a big decrease in readmission rates, about 16.5% in all, cardiac all adult cardiac surgeries, and 23.5% in isolated valves. Uh, they've also improved their perioperative instructions and discharge protocols and de demonstrated a decrease in overall service cost of care and profit margins. One thing we've also been able to look at this, when we look at performance improvement, we didn't look at it just in clinical opportunities, but in operational and administrative opportunities. So one of the things we were able to measure here is the look at the delta of IC, what ICU delay costs were. Uh, by looking at the delta of when two hours after an order for a transfer order for a patient to move to a lower level of care from the ICU to the time the patient actually leaves. And in short, we looked at it over a rolling eight-quarter period. And looking at the average length of stay that a patient spends in the ICU, cardiac surgery patient space, and then looking at what the average contribution margin was, we realized that we, the opportunity loss here was about $2 million, which in and of itself is not a lot of money. It's rounding error in some cases, I know. But it also means that we actually missed a boat on getting over 70, more than 75 patients in. 
And that doesn't measure the downstream effects of what it would have meant to have those 75 patients in, which would have been possibly referrals and use of other specialty areas. Another collaborative that we've had is a primary care collaborative, also a long-term collaborative, that was established in 2013 with the leadership, uh, and it was structured to understand primary care organization at each campus, local market forces, how transformation is approached, successes and challenges, and how to accomplish uh, system-wide change. So one of the things that they did was they adopted uh, a, su a success as adopting the care coordination patient navigator model that was originally implemented at UCLA and has now been picked up uh, in, across the medical centers. It's resulted in increased patient and provider satisfaction, improved outcomes, and cost savings. The second thing that we did, and the white paper is in your uh, folders, is the development of an agreed-upon patient and panel framework. Uh, and that was led by Colin Kivalin at UCSF, is she here? Colleen? No. Okay. Um, at UCSF, uh, as you know, there are no national standards for panel size in primary care, nor are there a standard set of definitions. If you can't, if there's no standards and you can't measure it, you can't improve it, it's very difficult. So this was a big deal for uh, a, a big undertaking, and, and it and a terrific co collaborative. They review the literature, they review practices at each medical center, uh, looked at the, each medical center's approach to panel size and agreed on a methodology for measurement, standard definitions, and ways to increase and decrease panel sizes for clinicians. Um, they rested on that uh, 14 to 1,800 patients for a clinician is appropriate for an academic medical center primary care clinician. But it also had now, we now have the tools to be able to adjust panel size based on risk, risk and complexity at any time. Uh, this report was just released in December. It's been picked up by the AAMC primary care leadership uh, to be distributed to academic practices. And the AMA, Dr. Christine Sinsky, is going to draft an outline module for panel size for their Steps Forward Practice Transformation mod module that will be available across the country. We hope that this acts as a model for other specialty uh, efforts, uh, specialty clinic efforts to look at and possibly adopt the methodology so you can look at uh, panel size in other areas. Internal and external partnership creation is another area that we're looking at uh, for with CHQI. So the first would be with the Athena Breast Health Network, which was created and led by Laura Esserman at UCSF. It's a collaboration across the five medical centers and public and private partners. And with that, the Wisdom Study, which is a PCORI-funded trial, was designed to test personalized approach, a personalized approach to breast cancer screening to optimize breast cancer detection in high-risk patients and reducing the unintended consequences of false positives in low-risk patients. Uh, because it's a five-campus effort and because it's a PCORI trial, CHQI obtained a tax ID, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, so that we could enable UC Health to provide personalized breast health services via its system to all UC care enrollees initially and, and, and eventually out to other payers and employers. So we currently now have an agreement. CHQI has an agreement with Anthem and with Blue Shield. We're working with some of the other payers and then some self-insured employers uh, that are now on board are Genentech and Salesforce. And this has been done also with the assistance of Dave Krauss and his group in contracting. We also have an MOU with the Armstrong Institute for Patient Safety. Uh, we're looking at uh, developing joint bicoastal quality initiatives in our systems to work together and demonstrate, really to demonstrate the value of academic health care and its impacts on population health. Also looking to create a joint venture to, create, to engage physicians in supply chain 
and then also to look and see what kind of opportunities we might have in creating an, an AMC consortium uh, across the country to demonstrate the value of academic health care and research education and in care delivery. So a couple of system-wide offerings, and, and, and the idea behind this is to create system-wide offerings that accrue back to the individual systems as new revenue and new patients. So we're looking at developing services uh, that can leverage the quality and expertise of UC providers on a broader scale, not limited to geography and not limited to the health system. Uh, so what the first thing we did, as I told you, is we got a tax ID. And this gives us the ability at UC Health to contract directly with payers and offer system-wide services by creating an umbrella approach uh, across the system. And as I said, we've done that with the Athena uh, Wisdom Breast Health Services for the Wisdom Trial. And we are looking at a couple of other opportunities to be able to do that. Uh, this in and of itself was pretty groundbreaking. There has never been a, a commercial payer who's recognized a virtual entity, which is essentially what we're acting as. It's a virtual roof. Um, so the fact that we did have a, a, an agreement, we put an agreement in place with Blue Shield and now with Anthem is, is very new. Um, it's been done on, a government, on the government side, but definitely not on the commercial side. Um, with regard to UC Telehealth, uh, we're looking, at the end of 2015, we spearheaded efforts to create a system-wide telehealth program that combines the expertise of all of our health systems and makes them available to those who are seeking health care through telehealth technology. And we haven't done this on a system-wide level either. Uh, after a lot of due diligence, we're planning on starting with uh, telemental health. And we're looking at our areas where we're, we have a lot of good, strong specialty expertise. We're not looking to be one of the, uh, an urgent care telehealth provider. Um, so we're starting with telemental health, and which, will give, which will give providers and patients the ability to access all of the UC systems. We've engaged with the uh, chairs of psychiatry at all of the medical centers, and Larry Friedman, who's here, he's sitting in the middle of the room, UC San Diego is the physician champion. So we can give you any more information you want about that. But to know that... Um, and it was interesting, when we brought together the psychiatry departments, it was the first time that all the psychiatry departments had been together in one room. So to your point about you know, people not really knowing, they didn't even know who, each, who they were. And um, it, it was great. And it was 100% endorsement and a lot of enthusiasm to do this. So stay tuned. We, um, we've been talking to a lot of people, we were, and we're now in the process of securing funds. And as of last week and this week, it looks like we have um, the, the funds are on the horizon and we are going to be able to launch this effort, this first effort. This will be the first of a lot of specialty efforts, certainly not the last. And lastly, in workers' compensation, we entered into an agreement with Randall and Quilter Health Interests, which is a property and casualty insurance holding company, focusing on workers' compensation, uh, to develop workers' comp services for uh, eligible patients, specifically addressing patients with opioid dependencies as a, as a uh, result of work-related injury. Um, we started working with uh, the Center for Behavior and Addiction Medicine at UCLA, and we den then did do a system-wide agreement with them. And while it's taken much longer than anticipated to launch this program, uh, we started this a few years ago, uh, I can say that in the last couple of months, starting at the end of 2016, uh, since then we've had 43 patients who are now in treatment as workers' comp patients at UCLA for this effort, and they are getting more patients now referred weekly. So it looks like it's a go. So barriers and lessons learned. Um, I would, 
have, having been involved now with these collaboratives for a few years, collaboratives take a long time to coalesce and figure out how they're going to work together. We've got a lot of barriers just in our geography. We're working across a thousand mile radius. Uh, you, have, you have to build trust, you have to build chemistry, and you have to know that the people who are in the collaborative with you are committed. There's no playbook. And, and how these groups address their objecti objectives, I've learned, is contingent on specialty, resources, motivation, and hierarchy within the group and the individual medical centers. It does take a lot of support, and it takes centralized support. And what, that's what I hear over and over again. They can't do it without centralized support. Uh, I'm not going to read the list of barriers, but I will say, though, that as the system starts to develop structures and put structures in place for coming together around procurement, around EMRs and IT, I'm seeing that there's a lot more opportunity now for the, uh, a lot more opportunities for successes to be had across the system. Um, what we really need to make sure is that there's a lot of alignment, both with the individual medical centers and the system as a whole, and make sure our priorities line up and that there's endorsement. We also really want to make sure we have the right people in. So if a junior person wants to come in, and that's great. They really need mentoring and need to be engaged with senior leadership as well. We also have to make sure that we involve our non-clinical partners. Clinical initiatives in and of themselves won't work. You need to engage with IT. You need to get engaged with procurement and other uh, non-clinical non partners. So I'm not going to read the future directions. I think it's continuing to do what we do which is to continue to develop our relationships and our partnerships, expand our partnerships, and create platforms for, for our groups to come together. And with that, I want to introduce our panel and Mike Ong. Uh, Dr. Ong is a professor at UCLA at the School of, uh, David Geffen School of Medicine. He's also the director for the UCLA Connected Health, which facilitates telemed, telehealth, mobile health activities at UCLA Health Systems and he's also a chair of the State of California Tobacco and Education Oversight. Our four grantees are Wendy Anderson from UCSF, Maxime Cannison from UCLA, Greg Maynard from UC Davis, and Michael Stamos from UCI. We have a number of uh, uh, grantees uh, up here that led projects, and uh, I think the one thing that uh, typifies all of these um, projects that you'll hear about um, briefly are that they were multi-campus projects. And so we had um, some of the multi-campus projects that have uh, moved us more towards working together as a system, and so I think we can go ahead and start with Dr. Anderson. And we'll go in alphabetical order, so we'll go with Dr. Anderson, then Dr. Knesson, and then uh, we'll then follow up with Dr. Maynard and Dr. Stamos. Good morning. I'm Wendy Anderson. I'm a palliative care physician at UCSF and was the project lead for the Impact ICU project, which was a five-campus project. The goal of the Impact ICU project was to integrate palliative care into the intensive care units across UC Health by training and supporting bedside nurses. We accomplished this project by a train-the-trainer model where we selected nurse leaders at each of the campuses. These were palliative care and critical care advanced practice nurses and nurse educators that partnered closely with clinicians in the target units, which were two at each campus, as well as with the palliative care service to implement this project between 2013 and 2015. Our aims are mirrored in the three main components of our intervention. First, we had a communication workshop, which was led by palliative care and critical care leaders and interprofessional team at each of the campuses. 527 nurses completed this across the five campuses, and this focused on role play and very interactive ways that bedside nurses could translate what we do on the palliative care consult services into their work at the bedside. 
The next component was rounding in the target ICUs where our nurse leaders walked around the ICUs on a regular basis. And they walked the bedside nurses through the process of identifying palliative care needs for their patients and developing a plan to address all of those needs. And then the final component was that we worked very closely with the clinicians across all of the different units to make sure that the nurses' assessments were integrated into the daily care of the patients, and then also to make sure that our efforts were, with the Impact ICU project were integrated with other efforts related to palliative care in the ICUs. The central barriers that we encountered as we were integrating this very much are mirror those that we're encountering in the field of palliative care nationally. So we're a relatively new specialty within medicine and nursing. And so the questions that we're, we're facing is that really a lot of this project was a culture shift from thinking about palliative care for all patients who have a serious illness, not only for those at end of life, and then also real, realizing that the palliative care workforce is comprised of all of the frontline clinicians who are caring for the patients, um, and that that's from different specialties and different disciplines working in conjunction with a palliative care consult service. Additionally, much of the work of this project was determining for all the different types of patients in the different units that have different diagnoses, what are their unique palliative care needs and how can we work together as a team to address those. The CHQI funding was, and support was an incredible platform to be able to address these challenges. Um, and I think key to this was being able to develop this multidisciplinary and multi-specialty team at each of the campuses. And these involved clinicians who were working in our target units um, that could partner with their colleagues and really integrate what we were trying to do into the project, into the fabric of care there. The support of the CHQI and mentorship from the campus leaders was also, of course, instrumental in making sure that this project happened. Since the close of CHQI funding, we're very proud to say that we've been able to continue these education programs through nurse education at all of the different campuses. Uh, we've expanded our programs from ICU into acute care at many centers and also have been able to, tra to train clinicians other than nurses. Additionally, our palliative care collaborative, which was founded for the Impact ICU project, has been able to meet on a regular basis and has been able to think about palliative care across UC Health, which has been very fruitful for all of our campuses. And then finally, we've had the opportunity with additional funding to continue to expand the Impact ICU project. So we've partnered with other academic medical centers across the country. We are creating a video and websites for institutions that may have less of an infrastructure to, imp to, in to implement such a project. We'll be piloting the program at California public hospitals that are not the University of California Medical Centers, um, where we haven't already implemented it. And then finally, we've been partnering with professional societies in critical care so that we can disseminate our learnings. So a big thank you to the campus leaders and to the bedside nurses who participated in this program and without which we couldn't have done it. And a very big thank you to our Impact ICU team across all of the campuses. Great. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> Good morning, uh, everyone. So my name is Maxim Kennison. I'm from uh, UCLA. Uh, I was actually at UC Irvine when I started uh, this project of, on, on enhanced recovery after surgery. So just to give you a little bit of the background on this, uh, on this project. So we started working on enhanced recovery after surgery but in 2011, and my relationship with CHQI actually started through a, a fellowship 
that was organized by the, by the CHUI. We were seven physicians in, to be selected in 2011. We were a junior or mid-level physician. It was very multidisciplinary. And uh, the CHUI would, uh, at the time, help us implement a pilot project. And for me, the pilot project was uh, enhanced recovery after surgery. Another of the fellow, actually, is now at UCLA. Her name is uh, Anne Lin. And she's a colorectal surgeon, which actually helped a lot for the development of this project, because what I've learned through it is that multidisciplinary work is essential to improve uh, quality, at least in, in, in my experience. And also there was uh, 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 Robin Clark, who was a fellow from the CHUI, who was um, chosen to develop data uh, warehouse for uh, UCLA. So all together, we're able to, uh, to, to develop our own project. And then... The idea of enhanced recovery after surgery is based on a very simple idea that when you look at the UC system, excellence in care at the UC system exists everywhere. That's not the, that's not the problem. But when a patient does not receive excellence in care, it's not because the, the excellence in care does not exist. It's because of the lack of coordination. And uh, that's one of the main ideas of enhanced recovery after surgery is to take some items that have been shown each of them to improve outcome of patients undergoing surgery and try to deliver these items in a coordinated manner to every patient undergoing surgery. And when we studied at UCI, we studied with a very uh, micro system, a pilot project. We worked with uh, our colleagues in general surgery. At the time, Dr. Stamos was the chair of surgery. And then we engaged uh, uh, the same way. We engaged mid-level or junior faculty uh, during pancreatic surgery, Dr. Imagawa and Dr. Demirjian, uh, during colorectal surgery, Dr. Pigazzi, uh, or during GYN uh, surgery, and at the time we worked with uh, Dr. Barstow. And what we did is that we started in, uh, in 2012, we developed a training program to implement enhanced recovery after surgery. Initially, what we did is that anesthesiologists, we would focus on what is specific to anesthesiology, and we would engage surgeons and get their feedback, and each of us would develop best practice pathway. Uh, this program was going together in parallel with a program developed by surgery themselves. We trained the people in our department for about three months, including nurses, nurse anesthetists, uh, resident, faculty, and so forth. And then we, we tested the knowledge before and after the training, and then we launched the program for one year and then compared to a historical uh, group of uh, similar patients. What we were able to show after one year of implementation, and that was back in 2000, early 2013, that by implementing enhanced recovery after surgery, we're able to decrease some uh, surgical complication, especially surgical site infection, and the length, the decrease the length of stay in the hospital and also decrease transfusion during surgery by just changing the way we would give fluid to our uh, patient. This is a time series analysis of the length of stay for the specific patient population before on the left side and after the implementation. You can still see that these kind of processes are not going to completely make uh, complications disappear, but on average, this implementing process of care decreases uh, the length of stay. And then the UC uh, Health System looked at the financial impact of this uh, program. The similar program was going on at UC San Diego, and they found a decrease in the overall uh, cost of surgery for, for this patient. That was five years ago, and since then, uh, for those of you who are working in the perioperative period, enhanced recovery after surgery is becoming, uh, I would say, almost viral. Uh, we created the American Society of Enhanced Recovery in 2014 with uh, uh, anesthesiologists, nurses, 
We have Cyrenez on the board of director of the society and surgeon, of course, so very multidisciplinary. And the idea is to, to, to disseminate knowledge uh, regarding enhanced recovery after surgery. And I like to think that the, the UC system was a pioneer in this, uh, in this development. What we've learned from this uh, process, uh, the critical success factor, is that you have uh, executive and clinical champions and leaders supporting the project. Uh, for us at the time, the CHUI would organize meetings with CMOs of the different hospitals, the CEOs, and so us as fellow, we would feel extremely supported. Uh, it's very multidisciplinary. You need to have everybody on board. It cannot just be one specialty. It needs to be uh, done uh, and break silos. It's this, the strength of multidisciplinary project. The consensus building during the introduction of this program is critical. Everybody needs to agree on what we are going to do, and it, there's a little bit of uh, negotiation between the different specialty. Uh, continuous rolling education for everybody, including a junior faculty. The value of feedback to clinical teams. Then I think what's very important for us, at least, was to start on a very small uh, pro, uh, system. Start with a micro system, try to demonstrate the value of what you're doing, and then expand it naturally, and actually things expanded without uh, uh, even pushing for it. I think when you show the value somewhere, then it goes uh, to the other line. And then finally, measurements, data, and the ability to, to collect data and then to provide dashboards and look at the, the outcome is critical for the buy-in from the, from the team. Thank you very much. Dr. Maynard. Morning, thank you. I'm here to tell you about the UC-wide VTE prevention collaborative that was funded by uh, CHQI and present some uh, lessons learned. We had a great team um, working on this project. They had a, a, a group that was skilled in quality improvement, research, anticoagulation, DVT, um, and those sorts of topics, and it was a real pleasure to work with them. Um, we had some specific aims. We wanted to uh, maximize the quality of VTE prophylaxis, not just was what was ordered, but adherence with what was ordered. And we wanted to reduce the incidence of hospital-associated VTE uh, or venous thromboembolism at, across our system by at least 20%. And to do that, we needed to find a way to work together to have a collaborative, uh, to have measures that everyone could agree on for both prophylaxis and for the outcome of hospital-associated VTE. We needed to have good data, um, which proved challenging, and we ideally would use this as a springboard for uh, not just operational improvement, but for academic work and for dissemination. So we started out with interactive webinars and, and uh, screen sharing, email. We used Dropbox for things that did not have uh, PHI, and we used REDCap to collect uh, PHI type data, um, and we had a common tool, a common toolkit that really started from uh, lessons learned from that uh, earlier efforts we'd had at UC San Diego uh, when I was there. I subsequently moved up to UC Davis, um, and we emulated the Society of Hospital Medicine's mentored implementation program, where an outside person would come and sort of coach the rest of the group through the process and use proven interventions and measures and so on to keep things moving along. So to look at the adequacy of VT prophylaxis, we had to agree what adequate prophylaxis is, and that's 
it's got a lot of gray areas, so you had to make some compromises and come up with something that everyone could agree on. We had audits at 30 non-ICU beds and 15 ICU patients per month at each site, uh, albeit with a delay in starting that because of the difficulties in coming to those agreements and getting those tools out there. And we used um, administrative coding data for hospital-associated VTE, but we were sure to capture not just those that uh, clots that occurred de novo in the hospital, but also those where the patient would be discharged from the hospital, come back, uh, you know, 10 days later with the clot, and we called those hospital-associated as well. So we followed them out to 30 days. We subdivided those into surgical and medical and DVT versus PE and so on. Um, and importantly, we tried to have active surveillance at each site, meaning we tried to find ways to look for who was not on the right prophylaxis, at least on a subset of units right now, right today, and then correct them in real time and learn from that about why that had happened and improve the process along the way. Um, it's really not rocket science. It's standardizing, coming up with a protocol, embedding that risk assessment into order sets, um, education, audit, and feedback. Um, and there were innovations at each site. We had people doing different things with activity and mobilization, people trying to reduce central line um, associated clots. Um, importantly, um, we also looked at inappropriate coding and inappropriate testing, screening um, for asymptomatic DVT that's not too evidence-based in most populations. So our results were pretty good. We um, basically reduced DVT and PE by about 24% across all five sites. And that amounts to um, uh, about, let's see, what was it, uh, 81 fewer PE and 89 fewer DVT per year, which is about $2 million a year. So pretty good results and I think sustainable results. Um, cancer was a huge dominant risk factor. In the blue bar, that's the cancer uh, patient population and they had the highest DVT risk uh, by far. The red is the non-cancer population, the green is the combined, and uh, they can all be affected and all be improved, but certainly you, you're not gonna make much headway unless you're tackling that population. We had a lot of variability at our campuses. We had variability in committee structures, in EHRs, we had sites just starting EMRs or just changing EMRs, uh, and we had to send all these protocols through five different sets of committees, and they were starting at incredibly different places. So in uh, UCSD and UCSF, we're both at about six to seven per thousand patients uh, had DVT or PE within 30 days, whereas some uh, were up like 14 uh, per thousand. So dramatically different baselines, in part because UCSD and UCSF already had pretty robust efforts in place. Some of the others didn't. Uh, but obviously the places who didn't have those efforts in place improved the most and drove the improvement for the rest of the group. So this, I'm showing this not just, not just to show that the baseline was different, but to show that the variability at the end is very, very small. So at the end, almost everyone is between six and seven per thousand. In fact, I think all of them were. Um, at that point at the end. And that, that's a hallmark of improvement is that you drive out the variability. 
Um, I think we can improve further. This rate has stayed relatively stable um, since then with almost no real effort. Um, uh, but uh, we'll have to keep uh, looking for ways to improve. So I think we were successful. We were recognized by the CDC uh, as a hospital-associated VT champion. We published uh, several papers and um, some spinoff papers that, such as the AHRQ DVT Prevention Guide has a lot of our work in there. Um, and it's, you know, it's good stuff. Um, on the other hand, I think this variability in our baseline speaks volumes about our processes and our hospitals. It was very difficult to get the measures up and running. That took like a year to really get the measures even going. Um, medical patients did not improve that much. We're seeing that in the literature. Um, and again, this five different systems, five different EHRs, um, et cetera, uh, was always a challenge. Last but not least, we've ported these lessons to other hospitals and other systems, and some of them improve faster than we do, um, more than we do, and showed remarkable improvement in their medical inpatient population as well. So we should not be feeling too great about ourselves, even though we improved a lot. I think um, their approach in some ways is better than ours um, in, in their ability to standardize more quickly and get people on board more quickly. Thank Great. you. Thank you. So uh, some common themes, as you'll see in a moment. Um, Michael Stamus here from UC Irvine. Uh, pleasure to be here today. Uh, I think I'm the lone surgeon following Peter's comments about surgeons. I'm not an untouchable, by the way. <laughs> they all have my cell number, and they use it. <laughs> Uh, I led the uh, colorectal surgery collaborative, and we've already heard from a couple of people about colorectal surgery, and, and it's picked on for a reason, which is that it's got a very high morbidity. It uh, doesn't have a very high mortality, but it has a very high morbidity. Um, so uh, this was a, uh, uh, um, it, again, these are common operations, first of all, uh, and they carry significant morbidity, and, and they carry some mortality, although elective operations carry very low mortality, as I'll show you in a minute, our results across the UC system. Uh, when you get into emergency cases, the mortality goes up quite a bit. We focus just uh, on elective in this, uh, in this program. So we, have, uh, we had actually a pre-existing relationship between the five colorectal surgery divisions across the UC campus that, that uh, was really, uh, if you would, channeled then uh, with CHQI support uh, to be able to, to do more together. Uh, and there was significant variation seen, just like we just heard about the variability. And I'll show you that uh, in a moment on a, in a graphic slide. But that was implying that there was a best practice that we could adopt to eliminate that variability. Uh, so these were the five uh, campuses, of course, and we had leaders at each of the campuses, but those leadership uh, changed over the period of our uh, three-year program. Uh, but I just want to recognize the contribution of each of the individual um, uh, campuses, Sonia Ramworthy at uh, Davis, Mika Varma, uh, Ann Lynn, and, and others at UCLA, and Catherine Trotman primarily, and now Linda Farkas at UC Davis, and then at UCI myself as well as Joe Carmichael. Uh, so we have uh, NISQIP, which is a nationally validated database for surgery, and we decided to use that uh, for our uh, data collection, both for our baseline and our intervention. Somewhat complicated by the fact that UCLA had just come on board with, uh, with NISQIP, but nevertheless, uh, that was our approach. We had a collaborative agreement between the five UCs along with NISQIP to share data, and the data collection was 
carried out in a standard fashion per uh, NIS NISQIP's approach. Uh, this is our baseline data. So if you look here, uh, each UC got this kind of report, and they, the ones that got it, they are blue. So in this case, UC Irvine is blue. But you can see that we are all clustered in the top first or second decile in mortality. This was our baseline data before any intervention. So you can see we're all doing very well with mortality, but when you look across the other domains, and I didn't list them all here, these are just the ones that uh, were most relevant, morbidity, length of stay, return to OR, and readmission, you can see that there's quite a bit of spread amongst all of the UCs uh, in, in these. Now, these are deciles, and so in some of these, even though we might be in the sixth or seventh decile, the ODE ratio is actually less than one. And that's because of some outliers on one end that, that actually make us, uh, if you would, look worse. Uh, so, again, uh, our key objectives were to improve the quality of health care received uh, to these high-risk uh, patients, to do early risk assessment and improve communication with patients, to anticipate and prevent readmissions following operation. Uh, again, our baseline was um, uh, 2013 to 2014 academic year, if you would. We then had a transition period where we didn't capture data, and then we had the full intervention. Uh, parenthetically, the data literally was just released last Thursday, and then we finally got it from all the UCs uh, yesterday. So this is really real time, and I apologize for uh, um, um, any inaccuracies that are, that are in here. I think they're accurate. My, my team and my statistician was working feverishly over the weekend and uh, including last night to, to, to help me with uh, accurate data and accurate, accurate uh, analysis. Uh, so I'm not going to show these videos, but these were patient education videos that were actually produced by our, uh, a couple of our medical students who did a fantastic job. And the intent here was to make it easier for the journey for the patient through the process and know what to expect. And they're really tremendous, and they've been shared across all the UC campuses. Um, these are the questions that were asked, and these were taken from the Press Ganey survey, so we don't really have a choice on the exact verbiage. So we chose from a laundry list of questions which ones we were going to focus on for this project, and these are the ones that we, that we selected. And then we looked at patient satisfaction as well as the outcomes I talked about earlier in terms of uh, uh, morbidity, length of stay, and, and return to OR and, and readmission. So, yeah, the first question was information regarding symptoms or problems to look for, and you can see uh, we, didn't have pre, we didn't have baseline data from UCLA because they weren't using Prescani at that time, but we have the post-intervention data. You can see we were all doing pretty well in the beginning, and we all improved uh, a bit. This is, none of these reached statistical significance because of the relatively low N. The total number uh, in, in this is in the less than 1,000 range. Uh, and then we looked at good understanding and managing my health. Not much of a difference at all, maybe even a little worsening. Doctors explained things in a way we understood. No change at all, you would argue. By the way, Davis only had seven patients in their first series, so 100% doesn't mean a lot, uh, although it's good. Uh, but I think this may have to do with the question, the way it's asked. So we delegated, if you would, or relegated some of that explaining to the videos. And so if the patient takes it literally, the doctor didn't explain it, but the video did. So I don't know if that's impacting this or not. And then the staff talked about help when you left. It looks like some... Uh, maybe some modest improvement, but again, uh, some uh, uh, loss of the variability, I guess you'd say. When we look at the NISQIP data now, we can look at our overall morbidity. We didn't see any uh, significant improvement. Uh, again, uh, numbers are small, but in this case, it's about 1,500 patients total over the period of uh, the two periods. Readmission within 30 days, again, no, no significant uh, difference or change. Return to OR within 30 days. Here we saw change uh, pretty much across the board. Didn't reach significance, but is this relevant? Is it significant clinically? Uh, we hope so. And then when we looked at uh, uh, post-op outcome length of stay here, we saw the most, if you would, uh, uh, 
improvement. This is medium. When you look at mean, it actually looks better at all five UCs. Again, didn't reach statistical significance, but if you look at those numbers, it's about one day savings per patient across three of the UCs. And when you look at mean, it's about a little more than a half day per patient across all five UCs. Um, and there's the, 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 mean, the mean. So here's your uh, same uh, chart from NISWIP, if you would, before and after. You can see we're all still doing very well in terms of mortality, uh, but we still have significant variability across other domains. And um, so we learned from this, but, but uh, I think the number one, we had a pretty high baseline performance in terms of our mortality. Small population size, as I mentioned, and inability to really decipher reasons for variability, even looking at this data very carefully at, at the baseline level. And some of that has to do with the fact that these patients aren't commodities. So um, not to pick on my orthopedic colleagues, but unlike a hip replacement, uh, every colectomy is a little bit different, uh, and particularly at the UCs, where we don't do a lot of uh, straightforward colectomies. If you look actually at what we do, we primarily do complex colectomies, because people don't come in general to the academic medical centers to have what is a routine or straightforward uh, colectomy. So that's part of the issue. So these population differences and imperfect risk adjustment both internally as well as by NISWIP, they really just use ASA classification uh, as their only real risk adjustment within NISWIP. So that makes it difficult to really dis discern differences. Uh, changes in division leadership. So in three of the five UCs, there was a change during that three-year period in division leadership and therefore maybe uh, less um, uh, uh, attention to this, pro this project. Lack of institutional commitment in terms of multidisciplinary commitment uh, across several of the UCs, including our own. Uh, and somewhat inadequate support, uh, for, particularly for the part involving avoiding readmissions. And then just bandwidth. We're all uh, pretty busy with other things. What did we, uh, what's our upside? Well, again, we had some improvement, although not significant in length of stay and patient satisfaction. We had a lot of sharing of best practices across all five UCs. We had a lot of great collaborative interactions that have now translated into other areas within the departments of surgery at all five UCs. Uh, adoption of ERAS, which was a, a collaborative effort with uh, Maxine's program, and then uh, interesting clinical research uh, between several of the UCs that have spun out of, out of this program. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.